Big thanks to Stackery for supporting this episode. Stackery is the global leader in international parcel forwarding from the United States. Shop at any US retailer and ship anywhere, including Europe, with Stackery.com at prices up to 80% less than directly from the store. Stackery provides free storage, same-day consolidation of your packages, and a tax-free US address. Save 10% of your first shipment with the coupon Europeans. Find the link in our show notes. Stackery is spelled S-T-A-C-K-R-Y dot com. Hello Europe and welcome to this special episode of the Europeans where, as proud British citizens, we have decided to suspend our usual coverage of the entire continent and talk for half an hour about the royal wedding. Isn't that right, Dominic? No. Don't hit delete. We're going to carry on doing our normal thing. But a quick debrief because you're in London. I am in London, yeah. Did you go there to be close to the action? No, because it's not in London, Katie. It's in Windsor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but close enough, no? Yeah, close enough. But um, you wouldn't know that there's a royal wedding right now. Um, And in fact, we went to Hampstead Heath for a walk with the dog and I thought the wedding started at two, but it actually started at 12 and I got like all these news alerts saying it was starting and had to rush home to watch it. I was very, very concerned that I would miss it all, but I didn't. And did you cry like you did last time? Can you believe that, listeners? Dominic Kramer cried at the last royal wedding. Of course I did. Did you? And my Twitter feed was full of other progressive, Republican-minded people who (laughs) felt exactly the same watching it as a cynic and then being totally charmed by it i mean i don't want to talk about it much because i feel like i don't want to feed this media frenzy that's been all around the wedding and it's just been not the finest hour of the british or american media but i thought it was incredible to see this like conservative institution that is the royal family have a wedding where there was like a gospel choir singing and this amazing American preacher preaching about inequality and quoting Martin Luther King and also talking a lot about fire. And also it was amazing to see that Princess Charlotte has an asymmetrical bob at the age of three. She's so fashion. She is so fashion and we should not be talking about it. So that is all we're going to say. Okay. I mean, I haven't been indulging this at all. I'm quite proud to say. Did you not even watch it? No, it's a beautiful day in Paris. I went outside and ate a pizza in the sunshine and had a great time living my life. Um, I did look at the pictures afterwards. I took a little peek at the dress. Fashion sidebar, lovely Megan's dress is by the chief designer of the French label Givenchy. Givenchy himself died early this year and we did a great interview with the international editor of Vogue about why he was so influential. So if you are interested in design, do go and check that out. It was on March the 20th. Yeah, as soon as I heard that she was wearing a Givenchy dress, I knew you were going to use it as an opportunity to plug a previous episode. (laughs) You're a shark, Katie. You're not the only cynic around here. Anyway, listeners, this is a fairly British-flavoured episode moving on from the Royal Wedding, uh, by our standards anyway, because we are briefly suspending our ban on the B-word, Brexit, to talk to a British comedian, Kieran Hodgson, about a very unlikely new comedy show that he's done about how Britain ended up joining the EU. I mean, we tried not to talk about Brexit too much on it, but yeah, it's you're right, we should put a trigger warning because I think it came up a few times. But it's mainly about Brentree. What? Brentry. Oh, I heard that as Braintree, which is a, a place near where I grew up, which uh. is not glam. Anyway, 
We should do a feature about Braintree as well. Why not? We'll do that next week. Our other guest is Marit Higraf. I've just been for a nice glass of rosé in the sunshine with her. Am I sounding a little tipsy? No, you just sound as mad as usual. Hey, it's not very nice. Marit, anyway, is a Norwegian investigative journalist and the co-host of a new, new-ish, true crime podcast called Death in Lies Valley, which has been doing pretty well. Uh, it's a co-production between the Norwegian public broadcaster NRK and the BBC. And it's a really interesting story. It's about a very mysterious death of a very mysterious woman in Norway in the 1970s. Uh, Marit is actually on holiday in Paris at the moment. So I popped out for a quick drink with her to talk about the show and why the world can't get enough of really bleak Scandinavian stories. But first, it's time for Good Week, Bad Week. Good It has been a bad week for the Balkans. There are six countries in the Balkan area of Europe that want to join the European Union. Can you name them, Dominic? That's so mean. Okay. You put me on the spot all the time. Yes, I can. Go on then. Okay. Macedonia. Yeah. Kosovo. Yeah. Montenegro. Yeah. Bosnia. Yeah. Two more. Serbia. Yeah. And... What does it begin with? A. Albania. That's really good. Have you got those written down secretly in front of you? Genuinely don't. Oh, well done. You're a very good little European. Thank you. This week, those six countries got a pretty clear message from uh, the powers that be in Brussels that, yeah, thank you very much for waiting so patiently in your bid to join the European Union, but we're not going to let you in anytime soon. Uh, So these six countries all got invited to this big EU meeting in Bulgaria this week. But the problem is that all the countries already in the EU are very divided about whether it's a good idea to get any bigger at the moment and I would say the consensus is leaning more towards with everything else that's going on in the EU probably not a good idea one of the main reasons for letting them in is that some people see it as a way to limit the influence that Russia has in Eastern Europe Uh, Johannes Hahn who's the EU official in charge of the whole enlargement thing says it's a way of exporting stability basically trying to make poorer Balkan countries more like the ones already in the EU in terms of increasing trade with them and like making them more stable democracies but yeah this summit was pretty bleak in terms of the prospects of that actually happening the end of the summit the eu put out a statement essentially saying uh, what did it say we support the european perspective of the balkan countries i have no idea what that means but it definitely doesn't mean we support you joining the eu right now yeah i mean it's a funny one isn't it because some people are arguing that it's best to keep these countries in the waiting room so to speak because there's more incentive when they're in the waiting room to kind of become more European and prove to the EU that they've got these progressive values and like crack down on corruption and stuff like that yeah crack down on corruption whereas countries like Hungary and Poland which are already members of the EU there's now not much the EU can do to like get them to crack down on corruption and uh, all the other problems what are the other problems like freedom of speech That kind of stuff. Sexy stuff like the rule of law. Rule of law. For those of you outside Europe, the EU has been growing eastwards for the last 15 years. A bunch of new eastern countries like Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic came in in 2004. And in Western Europe, there's quite a lot of officials and ordinary people who'll tell you that we got big 
too fast, that it's flooded richer economies with cheap labor, which causes all kinds of social friction and stuff like that. On the flip side, yeah, like you said, the whole like accession process forced those countries to kind of up their democratic standards, or at least that's what some people would say. I think the jury is still kind of out on whether we actually did get big too quickly, but it's definitely fair to say that we're not going to get bigger anytime soon. Who has it been a good week for, Dominic? It's been a good week for Amsterdam, potentially. Listeners that have been uh, listening to this podcast in their ears for a while now will have heard us talk in the past about how grumpy the local Dutch residents are about tourists in the overpopulated city. And yeah, there have been various policies trying to stem the massive rise in tourists, like limiting the number of nights Airbnb can host, flat rate tourist tax being introduced and banning those awful beer bikes from the city centre, but not from the area right outside my apartment. Lucky me. Oh, no. Ugh. Do you know what beer bikes are, by the way? Or are they just are they just an Amsterdam thing? Uh, I've hung out in Amsterdam a lot, so I know, but maybe explain for the wider public, this amazing institution. I don't know how to describe them. You just Google beer bikes. They're like a machine that like 12 people can sit on and they each pedal and drink beer while someone at the front, a professional, I hope, steers. It's a rickshaw. It's a, a 12 bike rickshaw. Yeah, but it's not really because you're sitting in a table and chairs. It's kind of like a bar on wheels. It's kind of an amazing invention. If it wasn't so terrible, it'd be amazing. And it's like full, usually, of awful British tourists on stag or Hindus. And it's really not nice, actually, for my local community, which is quite a quiet part of town. There are just always these British people like randomly cycling around, getting in the way and shouting and drinking. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting distracted. The good news is that there have been various policies suggested by four political parties that are trying to form a new coalition following recent local elections. They've announced new laws that they want to stem the Disneyfication of Amsterdam. There are various policies proposed, including strengthening these Airbnb limits, shutting down the cruise ship passenger terminal, cutting down even more on the beer bikes and segways. Um, But the one that caught my eye is their plan to limit any new sites for large retailers and restaurant chains in order to avoid monoculture. It seems quite out there. I can't imagine that ever happening in the UK. It would just be such a good thing for independent cafes and shops. And it's such a nice way of helping local business thrive and stopping these evil multinational corporations taking over the city. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know certainly in not necessarily Amsterdam, but uh, Utrecht, which is another beautiful city in the Netherlands, it really strikes you when you get off the train there. All you see for like the first five minutes walking in is like Subway, McDonald's, H&M. It's really, really striking. And I guess Amsterdam is like that to some extent. I don't know. It's not as bad as England. I agree. Actually, it was something when I moved to Amsterdam I was struck by how much diversity there was on the high street and how there aren't that many chains of restaurants most of the bars you go to at least seem independent but I did then discover that a lot of the bars are owned by the same people and they just are very good at making it seem like they're independent Mm. but anyway I think it's a really they sound like sensible policies um, and I'm sure some people will hate the sound of them But I like the sound of them personally, and I think it will make the place I live uh, that bit nicer. They also want to make the streets calmer, so they're going to ban video advertising on the streets and also impose an advertising tax. 
So, yeah, happy Amsterdamers. Lovely. That sounds very zen. I'll test out how zen it is at the moment. I'm going on a little trip to Amsterdam, listeners. I was really clever. I booked a ticket to Amsterdam on a whim and then announced to Dominic, I'm coming to Amsterdam. And then he told me, I'm not going to be there. You're an idiot. And now I'm going to be in Amsterdam on my own for an entire week. But I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm going to eat loads of waffles and drink a lot of very small beers. And do lots of podcasting work. Sure. Sure I am. Sure. Might be busy in the park smoking, but... No smoking. If you're listening, mum and dad, no smoking at all, obviously. Anyway, let's move on. So I've been a bit obsessed with this podcast, with Death and Ice Valley. And I think you've been enjoying it too, haven't you? Even though you're a bit squeamish about true crime. So I feel a bit weird about the whole idea of true crime as a genre. I find it a bit gratuitous. And I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of people basically taking things that really happened to people and like affected real families and looking at it a bit like it's CSI or something like that. But this one is a little bit different, I think. This is a really, really interesting story. And it's 50 years old already, which gives it a bit of distance, I think. Um, Just to fill you in quickly, we don't want to put any spoilers in this show, obviously, but it is the mystery of a woman that was found dead in the hills near Bergen. I went there. Did you? Yeah. I even went into the hills. Oh, were you murdering anyone? No, I thought you were going to say, were you murdered? God, why am I always cast as the murderer? You just got that kind of face. Just because I'm a man. Men's rights. Oh, don't even. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm not even going to make a joke about men's rights. I think it's absolutely hideous. Anyway, we were very busy talking about this murder. Let's go back to that. Sorry, I'm getting... I'm really easily distracted today. Calm down. It's all those video advertising things on the streets. They're driving you mad. Oh, it's really hard for me. So this woman was found dead in 1970 in the hills outside Bergen. She had... A lot of drugs in her body, I think, and had also her body had been burned as well. And there are a lot of like really odd things about it, like the labels and her clothes have been cut out. Um, afterwards, investigators found that she had all this luggage in left luggage facilities that included wigs and glasses with kind of non-prescription lenses in them. So the obvious first thought was she must be a spy of some kind, or that seems kind of likely. Uh, so this podcast is just taking another look at this massive mystery that is very much still unsolved 50 years on. It's very strange, actually, to be uh, interviewing you in this downstairs in a bar because normally when I listen to your podcast, it's very atmospheric and there's a lot of rain noise. So I feel like we should be outside in the forest somewhere or somewhere where it's very wet. Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind how you got interested in the story? Because you've been working on this story for quite a long time now. Yes, I started working on the story uh, approximately two years ago or even before that because it was part of a project I was involved with to look at homicides or criminal cases in Norway that we could contribute on and possibly solve as part of the true crime wave you know it was even before serial I started looking into this case the bigger project didn't work out but this story was too good not to be told it's almost 50 years old this story so it has been told several times but most people, let me say, under 40 years old, they didn't know about this story. What is it about the story that particularly fascinates you? The things found, her belongings, there were codes, there were many different false identities. It's a lot of unanswered questions and we're trying to answer at least one of them because I think to answer the other ones, you first have to answer the question, who was she? 
And of course, we're talking about a time, it's 1970, it's a time where what we call the Cold War, especially in Europe. And her behavior and all the, the fake identities and so, of course, it points in the direction of that she could have been a part of the Cold War, so to say. You don't know how this series ends. Does that is that kind of a worrying thing for you as you're making the show, not knowing how this ends? Of course, I mean, that's difficult as a journalist. Normally, we work the way that we first gather all the material, we find all the answers, and then we publish our stories. So this project is different. We don't know any answers. We really don't know, and we even don't know if we're going to get them. We're trying with the help of the audience, we're involving the audience, and we are um, hoping that the power of podcast reaching out there to people, because we know that the answer is out there somewhere in a relative or a neighbor, a workmate or somebody who can recognize something about this story and think, hmm, maybe that is the person that disappeared. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the show is that every week, you know, you say at the end, like, if you know anything, if you've got any leads, please do get in touch. Has anyone in the audience come up with any useful leads yet? We have our own Facebook group and there's a lot of discussions going on in there. They're really eager, our audience. And we've got a lot of reactions and also some very interesting ones. Hey, I'm intrigued. I'll have to find out more. Um, what was the idea behind making a podcast out of this? Because I know obviously true crime podcasts have become a thing in the last few years that's hugely popular was part of the idea behind doing a podcast this idea that oh lots of people are into this maybe it's a community that would be able to help us actually solve the mystery the bbc should answer this question because they came to me and us and asking for us to join in a podcast and i i guess it's the things you say i mean true crime appeals to people i mean Everybody wants to be joining as a detective and we invite to that. We invite the listeners in. And if you have a look at our Facebook group, we will see that there are very deep discussions there about everything and a lot of theories and speculations, but also very good quality on some of them. We really read this with interest. They contribute in different things like her cosmetics. We post them pictures of the bottles that was found in her suitcases and they are discussing where where they came from and they discuss her handwriting and the way she filled out the forms and yeah so it's helpful another audience that this show is tapping into i suspect is there's quite a big audience now for sort of scandinavian crime stories this whole scandi noir thing has become a real genre in the recent years what is it about grisly stories from your part of the world that seem to fascinate people around the world i don't know the answer to that actually i guess there were quite a lot of tv shows from scandinavia maybe we are an exotic corner of the world to people because scandinavia i mean it's really a corner of the world not too well known to lots of people I guess it's quite easy for us to distance ourselves emotionally from this story because it happened so long ago. But it is still, it's a horrible case. This woman's body was found burned in the middle of nowhere and we know very little about her really, even after all of this. Has it been an emotional process for you? Has it been emotionally difficult at points covering this story? It hasn't been emotionally difficult. I can cope with that after years and years as an investigative journalist working with different topics, also difficult topics. But I have to say, 
working so long time with this project has of course made me feel I know this woman. I've read thousands and thousands of documents and tried to understand. But on the other hand, I know so little about her. Who was she? What was she doing in Norway? Why did she die on that spot? And and it has gone under my skin in a way. I find myself often thinking about it, sitting on the metro here in Paris and seeing a woman look like this or that. And I think that's how she looked like, or maybe it was that how she looked like. You know, you are searching for the answers so much of your awake hours during the day. So it, it does something to you. Yeah. I mean, obviously this isn't going to have a happy ending, but what for you would be the best ending to this story? I want to give her back something that she has lost, a name and a dignity. And the best case for me would be to find a family or relatives or friends or neighbors and to bring her back where she belongs. That was wonderful. Marit Higraf, you can obviously find the podcast pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. There is also a Facebook group where lots of sort of amateur sleuths are enjoying trying to help out solve this mystery. So if that's your bag, do get involved. Who is our next guest, Dominic Kramer? We are now speaking to Kieran Hodgson, who is currently preparing his latest comedy show for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival, if you don't know about it, is the largest arts festival in the world. And it's particularly famous for showcasing the best comedy talent. And it culminates in a prize being handed out for the best comedy performance Um, And our guest, Kieran, has been nominated twice previously. So we may be speaking to a future winner. Who knows? Um, We are talking to him because his upcoming show is rather European in that it is looking at the 1970s in the UK when Britain was thinking of joining the EU and when Britain had joined the EU in 1973. Well, it was then called the European Economic Community, wasn't it? I don't even know. I'm so bored by the whole thing. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. Anyway, it's not a boring conversation. Uh, But trigger warning, as we mentioned before, there are few very brief mentions of Brexit because there are some obvious parallels but we wanted to speak to him to find out like why make a comedy show about this yeah I just want to clarify when I said I was bored by the whole thing I'm not bored by Kieran I think it's just that intrinsically Brits and probably most Europeans get very bored by like the mention of treaties and the European cold and steel community and various things like that so I was really intrigued when you told me that this guy was trying to make that the subject of a comedy show. Like, how on earth do you do that? It's a very, very bold ambition, and I am very intrigued to hear more about it. It's not the most obvious topic for a comedy. How on earth did you come up with the idea of doing a comedy show about, like, how Britain joined the EU in the first place? The last few shows that I've done have followed my hobbies, followed things that I'm interested in, that I'm passionate about. Three years ago, I did a show about cycling and how much I hero-worshipped Lance Armstrong. And then a couple of years ago, I did a show about classical music and about how I've been trying to write a symphony. And these were topics that were not necessarily great for comedy in and of themselves, but I found it enjoyable rising to that challenge and getting a personal connection between myself and the subject matter that the audience could witness. Another of my hobbies and passions has always been history. And in particular, I find myself drawn to the somewhat obscure period of the 1970s, which I don't know how 
how it's seen in Europe, but certainly in Britain, we regard it as the lowest ebb of our post-war era. It was a decade full of strikes and political turmoil, and it's somewhat forgotten about these days and somewhat uh, derided. It's a bit of a punchline. Uh, but I've always found it very interesting, and there's some huge uh, characters and personalities from that period. And with the referendum result two years ago, it seemed quite an apt matching of subjects between something that was very contemporary and that everyone was talking about, i.e. Brexit, and something that, that I cared about and that maybe other people um, wouldn't know so much about and that I could bring to them. So presumably you're expecting many, if not most, audience members to not really know much about what happened back then. Um, I mean, I guess lots of people lived through it and maybe they do but for people of our generation it's funny i thought that it would be useful to do some research and, and ask some people who had lived through it but most of the time they don't know anything about it either um i asked some of my parents friends who were all students at the time you know what they thought of wilson and heath and how they voted in the 75 referendum and uh, they all said oh, i can't really remember i was in the bar <laughs> so they were useless uh, people who lived through the 70s are absolutely useless so, yeah, I have to assume a level of zero prior knowledge from the audience, I think. But that's that's useful because then you're not just trying to get a laugh out of, oh, here's the impression and you recognize the voice. You have to do the impression, but also say funny lines and find a funny and appealing thing about that person's character. You can't just get laughs of recognition. Are you also setting yourself the task that we have set ourselves with this podcast to try and mention Brexit as little as possible? Yes, indeed. I mean, obviously, the point of reference that everyone these days will have vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with Europe is Brexit. So that pretty much has to be the starting point. But yes, from there, I think that there's a lot of very surprising information and uh, exciting new territory uh, to be explored. The question at the heart of the show is, I suppose, how does knowing more about the past help us in any way when it comes to um, solving questions of the present? The traditional approach that I suppose we are very much taught at school is, well, you have to know about history, and if you know about the history of something, then automatically your understanding will be improved. And that's absolutely the position that the show starts with. But does it end there? Who knows? <laughs> um, it seems a bit mean to put you on the spot, but I'm still, I still kind of need convincing that the story of Britain joining the EU is a funny one. Could you maybe give us a little sneak peek of some of the stuff that's in your show? Oh, heavens above. <laughs> Sorry. Katie, that's such a cruel question. It's cool, but come on, I don't want to know. And everyone's going to want to know. I shall refrain probably from doing bits of it. I guess things that I find funny are not necessarily the events themselves, but the people who were involved in it. And my background as a comedian is not necessarily stand-up. It's character comedy where I come on and do silly voices. And there's some very silly voices in the 1970s, especially among public figures you don't hear anymore. And I liked bringing some of those characters to life, like Ted Heath and Harold Wilson, Roy Jenkins and Barbara Castle and Margaret Thatcher, of course. I guess I'm trying to find humour in their personalities and in their characters. 
so you were talking about how you might be able to learn about the present by learning about our past. Mm. Have you found that yourself while learning more about this process of how Britain joined the EU? Do you find little glimmers of the present situation when it comes to Brexit? Oh, completely. For a lot of people who are maybe, I certainly count myself among this, um, quite complacent about our relationship with Europe. I remember for the last 10, 15 years or so, UKIP and all that being very much a, a sort of punchline for a certain section of us in in the sort of remainy side of society. And all of a sudden, Europe blew up two years ago as a big thing that, that threw the whole country into a big political <laughs> unravelling. And it was almost as if it had come from nowhere. Well, as soon as you look into it in any sense, you see that that's rubbish. All of the arguments, the difficulties that blew up so spectacularly a couple of years ago have been vocalised and discussed all the way back to our, our very first attempts to join and were certainly raised repeatedly during this period of the 70s in the parliamentary debates about whether we should sign the accession treaty. And then, of course, in the campaign for the first referendum in 1975. I was wondering, do you think some of the countries like Macedonia, Albania or Serbia, like the countries that want to join the EU at the moment, should they come and see your show to learn the lessons from the past and work out <laughs> the whole how country. should we... <laughs> yeah. If they want to join the EU so desperately, maybe they should come and watch your show to find out how not to do it. Or, I mean, I don't really have any expert knowledge on the uh, political history of Macedonia, so I wouldn't want to uh, make statements telling them what to do one way or the other. Britain has always had a difficult and mixed relationship with its European identity and a big split that's gone on for the last 50 years, right, ever since the war, really, is that question of, are we wholly in one thing? Are we wholly out of it? How do we marry this sense of us being a leading member of Europe, but then also wanting to be a leading member of the Commonwealth, leading member of NATO? That itchy feeling that I think there always was in Britain about anything coming from Europe and that sense of this was not something that we were leading, but something that was imposed on us. And, and I think that's a kind of psychological difficulty that, that Britain has always had. And I'm not sure that it is one that is shared by other countries in Europe who have a completely different history. And I'm not sure the experience is, is transferable. I'm just trying to solve our own squalid little problems. <laughs> has doing this changed the way that you personally feel about Europe? I mean, I'm guessing you voted to stay in the EU or maybe that's a wrong assumption. Uh, I, I did, I did. And I still feel that if it happened again tomorrow, I would definitely vote to remain. The more you read about it, it's not necessarily that it confirms what you think and it's not necessarily that it converts you to the other way of thinking. It probably just makes it harder and harder to arrive at an opinion that has any firm grounding. So, yeah, I probably still would vote to remain, but uh, I don't think I would view the other side with such hostility. That sounds like a good result from doing this process. Um, my final question is, where did you get your jumper from that's in the uh, advert, which is, uh, listeners, it's an amazing jumper with lots of European flags on it. That jumper was originally worn by Margaret Thatcher during the referendum campaign in 1975. I was going to say, that like the same one. Yeah, she had just become leader of the Conservative Party and the, the Conservative Party was the big pro-European party at the time. And... Uh, she had yet to develop her own doubts about the whole enterprise. And so for the referendum, she appeared wearing this lovely jumper with uh, the flags of the nine countries. And a couple of years ago for the 
the rerun referendum, a company decided to print a, a limited edition of these jumpers. And unfortunately, the company now no longer exists and you can't find them on Amazon or eBay or anywhere online. So I went on Twitter and I put out a call saying, does anyone, did anyone buy one of these jumpers? And a few people did. They were mostly political journalists at newspapers who I think wanted them as a, a guilty pleasure. So they very kindly, a couple of them agreed to lend me their jumpers. Uh, so it's a purely temporary basis. It's not mine. I have to return them, but I was able to uh, do the photo shoot in the jumper. And uh, yeah, it looks looks good, doesn't it? It's great. I love it. Uh, good. <laughs> I don't know if good is the word, but I kind of feel like, Dominic, we have to get our hands on a couple of these jumpers because... It's, it's a hard look probably to get away with, like in the street. <laughs> I feel like if anyone could pull them off, it's us. Yeah, definitely. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Do not question my confidence on this. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival starts on August 3rd and runs pretty much the entire month. If you get the chance to go, go. It is amazing. It's a whole month of like weird and wonderful plays and comedies and performances. And it's in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, in my opinion. In my opinion, too. I actually went with um, one of our previous guests on this show, Andy Buchanan, the photographer. Oh, another plug for an old episode, is that? Maybe, a little bit. What's wrong with that? <laughs> it's fine. We should be encouraging people to listen to our amazing back catalogue. Yeah, that's true. We should. Please listen. It's worth it. You won't regret it. You sound like you said that at gunpoint. <laughs> I didn't. I promise. <laughs> Um, but anyway, before you go and listen to all our wonderful previous episodes, again, I mean, if you've already listened to them, um, we'd still have to do the happy ending, Katie. So the happy ending this week comes from the eastern edge of the continent, Chechnya, where the Russian government have claimed that Koku Istanbulova is about to turn 129. Is that a person? That's a person, yeah, it's a woman. Okay. And, I mean, this is an if, and there's a big if. If this is true, then she's the oldest woman in the world. Nice. Uh, the government have released an internal passport showing her date of birth as the 1st of June, 1889. Whoa. She was in her 50s when the Second World War ended. Didn't we just lose the last person who was alive in the 19th century? Has she just come out of the woodwork, Koku? Yes, she has, but it's also not totally sure that this is true. <laughs> so you think this is some like big Russian disinformation thing? It really could be. So Russia claimed that there are quite a few people living over the age of 110, and mainly in Chechnya or in the Caucasus region. And actually, there is some evidence that people in the Caucasus are inclined to live a bit longer. I don't know why that is. Um, but it's interesting. It's like on the border. It's these mountains on the border of Europe and Asia. And she's lived a very normal life. And for the sake of this happy ending, should we just pretend that we don't have any doubts about it? And that she is, in fact, turning 129. They did release a, a passport. But um, apparently she lost all her official documentation during the Second Chechen War. So there's nothing like no birth certificate or anything. She's really blasé about having lived so long. And she claims not to have lived in any like particular way that's made her live longer. She likes gardening. She's a big fan of fermented milk. Um, <laughs> oh, so rank. get fermenting, Katie, if you want to live to 129. No, thanks. But anyway, I thought it'd be nice to celebrate 
the long life of an old woman. That is wonderful. Well done, Koku. I should also mention that she says she's been miserable every day of her life and sees her long life as a punishment from God. <laughs> um, I love reading all these like accounts by really old people about how they do it. But this one's a bit disappointing. I prefer the ones where it's like, smoked 60 fags a day, drank nine pints of Guinness, and look at me now. But um, if it's fermented milk that we need, then so be it. And gardening. Next week, we will probably be bringing you news from Ireland's historic referendum on legalising abortion. We've got a great interview coming up with a guy who's organised a talent show for deaf people around Europe. Uh, What else is going on? You're going back to Germany. I'm going back to Germany. And um, we should also tell our listeners that you may have noticed we had a little bonus episode that came out last weekend that was like introducing us to all the many new listeners that we've got recently. We're currently featured on the US New and Noteworthy, the front page of iTunes. Oh, no, Apple Podcasts. We have to call it Apple Podcasts and Um, never say iTunes again. I don't understand why. You're going to be sharpening their knives. They're coming after you now. Yeah, we're going to be off the New and Noteworthy page before we know it. Anyway, uh, it's like a big deal for a podcast to appear on this page. Well, it is for us anyway. And it means our listener numbers are going up, which is really nice for us. So we're welcoming new people. But it also got me thinking, like, if you guys, the long term great fans, if you have any friends you want to introduce to the podcast, send them a link to that episode. Very clever. Um, I'd also like to apologize to all the people that sent us messages on Instagram that we <laughs> didn't see because it turns out Instagram have this like secret direct message box that people that you don't follow yet, they just like hide them away. And so it, it, we, it, we probably seemed really rude. Can I make a confession? What? I didn't know that I had an Instagram inbox till about three weeks ago. I'm that old and bad at Instagram. It was his whole revolution. It was like, wait, you can like send and receive messages it's amazing that is really shameful anyway if you want to see katie's rapid progress in learning how to instagram uh you should follow us at europeans podcast i did a story the other day listeners i'm very proud of myself Uh, i'm better at tweeting we're very good at tweeting in fact we are there at twitter.com forward slash europeans pod and we're on facebook at facebook.com forward slash europeans podcast have a great week everyone And we will see you in this continent or another one next week. Bye. Bye. Oh, should we say it in Norwegian? What is it? Oh, or in Royal. (laughs) What do they say in Royal? Fare thee well. (laughs) That really suits you.